idea of new life in Christ. And um, I, I think it's worthwhile to reiterate before we get started here that Paul is um, already in process. Our author has already had things to say. He's laid a whole lot of groundwork, foundation, preparation, and what he wants to say this morning is, is built on, it understands, it draws from all those things, okay? And so it, it is important then for us to kind of look back as we go. In fact, I'd encourage you this week to go back and read over the letter again and kind of get a running start, get the momentum until you hit this passage, because it'd be very easy to miss, um, to miss Paul's meaning here. Um, we have already seen at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, a therefore and a consequence. He's basically said, here is our calling in Christ. Here's what God has done in Jesus. Here's the new community he's formed in the church. Here's the resources that are available to you spiritually. Therefore, walk them out, live them out, enter into them, enjoy them, allow them to change you, so on and so forth. But he did it primarily in terms of us as a community. And that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks, is that the Christian life is only lived together. There is no Christian life alone. You have been called into the church. You've been made part of one body. You've been unified in Christ. You've been diversely gifted to serve one another. You've been called to exhort one another, pray one another, etc., and so forth, and ongoing. Now here, he talks about us as individuals. He turns to what God is doing in you personally through Jesus Christ. And so he says here, beginning in verse 17, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, you had promised your spirit who would come and guide us in all truth. And so, spirit, would you come this morning and instruct us and teach us through your word? Would you soften our hearts like the good soil in Jesus's parable to not just receive your word, but so that it would bear fruit in our life, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. We pray that as we realize the dramatic transition that has happened in our lives in Christ, that we would respond faithfully and daily in becoming what we are in Christ. Help us to understand these things and to enter into them in a fresh way, even today, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. We need to notice first and primarily how strong Paul's language is here. If you have read much of the New Testament, you've read a lot of Paul. He wrote uh, 12, 13 of our New Testament books. And often when he gets to application, he'll say things like, I urge you, or maybe in your translation, I beseech you, or, or maybe even I beg you, right? It's a very personal appeal. It's one that comes from passion and kind of, uh, kind of a place of um, wanting to draw you to make change, not authoritatively, not I command you, right, but inv invitationally. I urge you, I beg you. But he doesn't do that here. Instead, he says, I testify, and then he says, I testify in the Lord. What Paul is doing there is evoking his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He, he stands up and he says, I'm speaking as a representative for Jesus here. He says, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must not. Again, very strong language. 
Or look at what he says um, in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. And most of your English translations rightly put an exclamation mark at the end of that statement. He makes a strong contrast here between who you were and who you are, between what you thought and what you now think. And he calls us to enter into, to pursue, to make real, to establish those things in our actual everyday life. In fact, notice lastly that he uses the word walk. Again, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. Okay. This word is a key word in the book of Ephesians. In fact, when it comes to Paul's application, the second half of his book, he uses this word over and over. Look again at verse 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. And then in 17 we saw, look at chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love. Okay, And we can continue on. He says it again in verse 8 of chapter 5. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk over and over and over again. Now, notice with me very simply that the metaphor of walk uh, uh, brings up two very simple ideas. One is of a journey, right? A step is not a walk. Standing still is not a walk, okay? What Paul is calling us to here is progressive. It's continuing. It's ongoing. But second, the idea of walk means one step at a time. It's progressive in the smallest increments of growth. He doesn't say leap. He doesn't even say run. The idea here is of walking, of one foot in front of the other. And I would suggest to you this morning that we have to maintain the balance of both of those things. If you are a Christian this morning, God has something for you to do now. And if you do it, he will have something for you to do next, okay? For every step you take, there is another step to take. And this is essential to understand what God is doing in Jesus Christ because we tend to measure perfection from the top down. And so we look at our life and we go, nothing's going wrong, so I must be perfect. Now, I know we would always put a little asterisk next to that and say nobody's perfect. But what we mean is, I've done everything that needs to be done. If you are currently loving your spouse, there is more love to be had. If you are currently, um, you know, bold in presenting the gospel to other people, there is more boldness and more opportunity. Growth in the Christian mind isn't measured like an SAT. It's not, well, I just get all the multiple choices right. It's not measured like, uh, like an exercise exam. There, I've done my 10 push-ups. That's, there's no more to do. No, it is... The idea is towards growing, as we saw last week, more and more to be like Christ. And what I would suggest to you is that the idea of the uncanny valley applies. Now, I know this is a little bit of my nerd self coming out, but for those of you who are familiar with robotics or computer animation, the uncanny valley recognizes that the closer we get, the closer we get to making something that seems real, a robot that really has artificial intelligence, a computer-animated person that really looks like a human being, the more disturbing it is when it lets us down, okay? When you were a kid, and I'm going to date myself here, but when you were a kid and your Teddy Ruxpin ran out of batteries and started to warble in its voice, you didn't go, what? Right? You knew it was just a toy. But if it happened to your spouse, that's the uncanny valley, okay? It's the whoa, right? But the thing about the uncanny valley is the closer you get, the greater the gap, okay? In the same way, Paul confidently says in the last few weeks of his life, I am the chief of sinners, right? His growth in Christ has also been a growth in his understanding of how far he has to go, okay? One last metaphor, this one from your math classroom, Do you remember that evil math teacher who asked you to have a frog cross a six-foot pond, and the first time he took a three-foot jump, and then every jump he'd jump half as far, and the question was how many jumps till he gets to the other end, and the answer is he never gets there. Because every time he, he only clears half the space, and then only half of that space, and so on and so forth. It's like that. 
We are growing to be like our God who is infinite and perfect in his character. That's the agenda. So there's more for you to do. But, but there is also a sense we need to understand from this passage that this walk flows from a new beginning. In other words, if you're not a Christian this morning, the application for you is not to try harder. It's not to take another step. And that's why we need what comes before this to understand this. And we'll draw this out this morning, but I wanted to just lay this out. And so, again, two things this morning. One, taking the step is essential. God has something for you to do. Paul doesn't urge, he commands you to enter into the newness of life. But that newness of life is available in what Christ has done. We need both of those things this morning. Now, he starts here with a contrast. Look again at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. I don't know about you, but when I read things like that, my social justice meter gets a little nerved, you know. I I get a little bit bothered because here it looks like Paul is pointing to people out there and then making generalizations, especially negative ones, about those people. But what you need to remember is those people were these people. Okay? He is writing to Gentile Christians in the church. And so the contrast is not an us and them contrast. It's a now and then contrast. Okay? The contrast here that is significant for us is that it is no longer appropriate for us to live like we once did. Okay? Now there is no getting around this morning. And again, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is something that you have to face front and center. There's no getting around how negative Paul's description is of people apart from Christ. That is just another way of saying that we need Jesus. Okay? We may not be aware this morning of how much we need Jesus. We all know the possibility of underdiagnosing the symptoms. But the danger in doing so is that you don't apply the appropriate cure. Okay? If you go to a doctor and he sees the tumor in your stomach and says, oh, you probably just have indigestion, peptobismol. It is not just a misdiagnosis. It's a dangerous one. Okay? And so look at the statement he makes. It is, it is a dark statement of what human life is apart from God. And so notice what he says. No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, what is Paul saying here? This is actually pretty complex. This is a place where we could pull the e-brake and spend the day, if not a couple of days, talking through everything that's involved here. For this morning, though, I just want you to notice that there are three elements to this description, okay? The mind, the heart, and the actions. But I also want you to notice that he focuses primarily on the mind and the heart. It's not till the end that he tells us what this life looks like. Instead, he tells us how this life is formed, where it flows from. And he says the problem with the human mind is that it is futile, verse 17, In verse 18, that is darkened. Later in verse 18, that it is full of ignorance. Okay. In other words, he's suggesting that there is something wrong with the way we think as human beings apart from God. He's suggesting that there is an ignorance here. Okay. Now, there's an ignorance that's just a part of human life. We can't be everywhere. We can't know everything. And so we learn stuff, right? That ignorance is not culpable. It's just what it means to be human. You don't know what's happening on 3rd Street right now because you're not there. Okay? That's just human. That's different than God who is all-knowing because he sees all, he knows all, right? That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about willful ignorance. In fact, he tells us such because he says that their ignorance, he says, uh, Their ignorance, verse 18, that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Okay? This is the difference between being deaf and sticking your fingers in your ears. Okay? Neither hear. One, because of something they cannot help. 
other because of something that they choose, okay? But let's, before we go there, start with the mind again, and here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, effectively, the way that we human beings go about life apart from God doesn't make sense. There is a madness to sin. There is a, uh, a recognition that we sometimes have that the way that we go about life doesn't work, and yet we keep banging our head against the wall. There's a madness in the fact that we hold other people to a standard on their behavior and excuse ourselves from the same behavior. We justify ourselves. There's a madness in the fact that we um, continuously in our life set a horizon, set a goal, chase it and say, when I get there, I will be happy. But just like chasing a rainbow, every time we get there, the rainbow has moved. And what do we do? We just set out again and chase the same finish line and find it to just be another starting line. And so we find, like Rothschild said one time when he was interviewed about his wealth, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. You know what that is a sign of? It's a sign of something that doesn't work. When, when else do you go, wow, this medicine didn't do anything. I guess I'll just drink the whole bottle. Right? This is the ignorance that Paul is talking about. And again, we don't like to think of ourselves as ignorant people. The danger and the scary thing about blindness, when the Bible talks about it, is unlike the physically blind, spiritually blind people don't know they're blind. We see that in Jesus' ministry, right? He says to the Pharisees, your problem and the reason you're blind is because you demand, I see. He said, if you would just admit your blindness, I'd show you. We have this problem, this stubborn sense that we know best despite all the evidence to the contrary. I've told this story before, but I remember one time talking with a non-Christian guy who had come to our church for help, not this church, another help, another church. And um, he was in Washington State to clear up some warrants for his arrest. And the reason was because his girlfriend, with whom he had had a child, had just abandoned him and said child in the middle of the day. And so he was living in his mother-in-law's basement with a missing significant other, and he had spent the year prior to that basically just playing video games while the mom and the daughter were taking care of business. And so it was kind of a wake-up call for him. But he realized he couldn't step into this new responsible life unless he cleared out his record so that his, his daughter's safety wasn't threatened by you know, the fact that he could be arrested. So we're having this conversation, we're talking, he's, he's in need of some, some physical help, so we're helping him with things. He stays for dinner because we're having dinner, and I invite him to stay for the service. And he says, oh no, I'm not into that, I don't believe in some old man in the sky. And I said, well, neither do I, you know. And he said, what I guess I'm trying to say is I've always felt like I'm the captain of my own destiny. And I leaned across the table and I said, how's that working for you? Right, that's the ignorance that we're talking about that he could look at his life where it was now and recognize every step he took to get there and still feel like he's the best one for the job, okay? But it's not just a mental deficiency that Paul wants to point to in our old life. It's also a heart issue. And so what does he say about the heart here? He says that it is calloused. Do you see that? He says in verse uh, 18 again, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous. Okay. Now the heart in the Bible is the center of who you really are. It's not just the place of valentines and love, it's the place of all your emotions, it's the place of all of your desires, it's the place of your will, the choices that you make. And he says here that the problem with human beings is that our heart has grown hard. Okay. One of the ways I'd like you to think about this this morning is just that they've been hard in the sense that it's no longer malleable. Okay. Hardness of heart means that you're now kind of a one-track person going the same way, continuing on in that way, not really open to other input, to changes, in fact, we find this even in our own desires that we are totally capable of cultivating a desire, but we are not as capable of getting rid of it. Okay. And so we recognize, even many of us, that we have been malformed 
by our childhood and our choices, and now we will look at our life and we say, I wish I didn't want this at all. Now I have this hunger for something that doesn't help, that doesn't do any good. In fact, we can't really talk about the heart without talking about the habits, and that's where Paul goes next. How is it that our heart has been, uh, been hardened? He says they've been callous because they've given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, notice this has two parts. Desire and practice. Given themselves up to means I want this, and then they go and they have it. And the more they do that, the more it hardens their heart. And the harder their heart gets, the more blind and ignorant they are to the truth of things. Okay, and again... If you cannot see this in yourself, you can definitely see it in your siblings, right? You know when you look at people's life and you go, why are you doing this? Because of this. We're going to talk today about spiritual formation, but you need to understand that you've already been spiritually formed, for better or for worse. And Paul says that's what happens to people apart from God, because they are alienated from the life of God. They try and make a self-contained life, but it is a life that turns to stone, okay? And so he says here, sensuality, greed, every kind of impurity. Again, what he's trying to suggest here is that our desires don't work, and I want to just point to two ways that that happens this morning. One, We desire good things, but we don't desire them proportionately to better things. And so here's what happens. We take things that are normal, natural, everyday needs of life or really good desires that God has given you, and we make them primary. The Bible calls this idolatry. When we take something that God has created, like security or even like wealth and abundance, and we make it primary... And then we just constantly sacrifice every other good on the altar to that. Okay? And so if you say, my status is determined by the title I have at work, and it becomes the most important thing in your life, then you throw your family on that altar. And you throw your health on that altar. And you throw your uh, dependency on others and your responsibility to others on that altar. Okay? That is part of what this is talking about. But the other thing it's talking about is is that ultimately we begin to desire things that uh, uh, we begin to desire things that don't breed life. Like I said, we we find ourselves to have an inexhaustible stomach that just hungers for more and more and is never satisfied. That's why he uses the language of greed or sensuality. Sensuality means just, I want it, so I have it. Sensuality is the opposite of self-control. It says, I find in myself this desire, so I'm going to meet it. Okay. And again, that sounds like free choice. But free choice is truly tested in saying no. Are you really free to say the things you can't say no to? Or are you really free if you can't resist? Are you really free if the choice is always yes? When the Bible says that we are incapable of righteousness on our own, the best way to discover that it's telling the truth is to try and be a better person. Because one of the things that's amazing about this condition is that even good things and even strengths and even our virtues become avenues of evil. We do this in a ton of ways. The ends justify the means, right? Or, or maybe we become so filled with our apparent righteousness that we become judgmental of others, condemning of others, distancing from others. We find reasons like those in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan to distance ourselves from people in need because we're too good to help them, which again brings us back to that insanity. But here's the point this morning, two things. One, 
if you can't wrap your head around this concept in your own life, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you can't look back and see these things, that's not a good place to be. It's more ignorance. It's more blindness. Okay. One of the things about encountering Christ is to recognize how very wrong you were. To recognize how great the need really is. To surrender to a new Lord over your life because you are a terrible Lord. A friend of mine was dealing with cutting for years and years. And we went the rounds theologically about the concepts involved here so many times and nothing seemed to work. She just couldn't stop cutting. And one night, like many other nights, we were talking through these things and I said, you know what? You believe that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins was not sufficient. So you have to punish yourself because God will not. I said, that makes you God instead of Jesus. And you know what? You're a terrible God. Look at what you're doing to yourself. And that was it. That was the penny drop moment. That was the epiphany where she recognized that her way of living was ignorant and blind and unfulfilling and also not the only option on the table. Okay. But notice what Paul says in verse 20. Again, speaking to us as Christians, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What is he saying here? He's saying we have encountered a new curriculum, a new way of living. We have gone through something, experienced something that makes that whole possibility not continuable. I can't think of the word that I wanted there. Okay. But it doesn't make sense to continue that way. In fact, he contrasts and he goes, there's no way to keep walking that road now that you know what you know. Okay? That's the point that he wants to make. And I want you to notice that the whole thing here is about Jesus. In fact, the whole thing here is about Jesus to the degree that he is stretching the limits of metaphor. Notice what he says. He says, that's not the way you learned Christ. What is Jesus in that sentence? He's the subject. He's the curriculum. Right? He's, he's what you've learned. But notice what he says next, assuming that you have heard about him. Now, let me clarify something. That word about there is added by translators to try and make sense of what Paul's saying. The Greek just says, assuming that you've heard him. And the translators went, but the church in Ephesus never met Jesus. They never heard his literal voice. So why would Paul say, assuming that you've heard him, when they haven't heard him? But I would suggest to you they have heard him in the proclamation of Paul. Because that's what Jesus said. When you go, those who receive you receive me. And so Paul recognizes that it's not just the subject matter, but the teacher. Jesus is not just the content, but the instructor. And in the proclamation of the gospel, Christ died for sinners. They have heard the proclamation of Jesus himself. I am your sacrifice. I am your substitute. I am your Messiah and your Lord. All of those things are built here. But he finishes and he says, assuming you've heard him and were taught in him. So now he's not just the teacher and the content, he's also the classroom. He's the place where you learned. And this makes a lot more sense in Jesus' day than it does ours. Because remember, Jesus came to make disciples. He didn't make students, he made disciples. Here's the difference between the two. If you are a student of math, you are defined by the subject matter, by the content. If you are a disciple, you are defined by the teacher. Okay? And so when he says here, you've heard about Jesus as the truth is in Christ, there's a recognition that there is a relational component to this. That you have now become one of Jesus' disciples. That you have taken on the yoke that is easy and the burden is light. That you have come to follow Jesus. That's the idea here. But when you put this together, Paul doesn't say, 
change your life because haven't you learned about sociology? Change your life because haven't you embraced the reality that we now know about psychology? He doesn't talk about biochemistry, right? He doesn't say you can now change because we have found the secret to change. He says you can now change because Jesus. And this is so significant. Because what Paul is trying to impress on us this morning is that in Jesus Christ, you have everything you need for change. Now, this is not to downplay the significance of your physical body and your biochemistry. This is not to downplay the value that a counselor or a psychologist can have in helping you to understand yourself. As we saw last week, we need the whole body to do this. It's not just a download of the scriptures into your brain and bam, you're a different person. But what makes that life unfeasible, there's the word I was looking for earlier, is also what makes this new life that Paul is calling us to possible, which has something to do with Jesus. Okay. He says, you now have not just a new direction, not just a new philosophy of living, not just a new ideal, you have a new life. And this is something we don't always get and don't always remember about Christianity. The front door to what God did in Jesus Christ, we label forgiveness. And that's absolutely right. We are sinners who need to be forgiven. We need to be reconciled to a God who is just and holy and therefore divided from us. And Jesus Christ in his sacrifice, he bridges that gap. But that's not all. But wait, there's more. One of the ways that's helpful to think about this, that the New Testament uses all the time, is the difference between the fact that Christ died for you and the fact that you died with Christ. And, and we hit these hammers, uh, we hit these notes all the time, okay? When we participate in communion like we did last week, we remember that Christ died for us. But when you were baptized, you identify with Christ's death. You enter into the fact that as Jesus was crucified, so were you. And in the fact that Jesus died historically in a time and place in history, so also... Those who were in Christ died with him in that moment. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Paul is a great communicator, and so to different people and in different contexts, he uses different pictures and different metaphors. And so here in chapter 6 of Romans, he's talking about the same thing. But he uses different language. And I want you to notice what he says here. So he talks here about what happened with Jesus, and notice what he says in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is he saying here? That word for consider I find to be helpful because it's a math term. It means to reckon. It means to do your sums. He says, do the math for yourself. Your sins plus Jesus' sacrifice equals forgiveness. Or more importantly, this passage your death with Jesus subtracts your old life and Jesus' new life is added to you. Therefore, right, that's the math. He's saying you died with Christ. And so notice his application here. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Why? Because it's dead. Verse 13 do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Here's what he's saying. Same thing we're seeing in Ephesians. Because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, there is now something for you to do. 
because you died with Christ, don't present the members of your body as instruments of sin anymore. Because you have new life in Christ, instead, present them to God as instruments of righteousness. Okay. Now, I want you to notice that this is not just a grateful response. It's not, man, if Jesus gave his life for you, you should be able to give your life for Jesus. That's true. Paul's going to hit that in the next chapter, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It's true. The right implication to Jesus' sacrifice for you is a loving response in turn in the giving of your life. But this is more than that. This is in Jesus Christ. All of those habits and hindrances and enslavements and what he calls here the dominion of sin died. And now you have a new ability for change. But also... Therefore, stop living in the dead life. Start living in the new life. Okay. In other words, getting back to Ephesians, God has done something so significant in Jesus Christ, it is brand new. But there is also something for you to do daily to enter into that newness. Do you see that? Okay. That's why, notice the metaphor that Paul uses back in chapter 4. He says, if you've heard these things of Jesus, if you were taught in Jesus, what were you taught? Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Can you spot the metaphor? Put off and put on. What does that make you think of? Clothing. Right? In fact, I, I like the comparison of these things. You have died, therefore take off the grave clothes. You are alive, therefore wear your Sunday best. Okay? I like the distinction between those things because they're not equal. But also, what I think is helpful about put off, put on language is it recognizes habit. Think about the way you get dressed. For starters, you do it every day. Okay. But also, have you ever thought about how little you have to think about getting dressed? And I'm not talking about those of you who like to look nice and you put thought into it. I'll be honest, the lights aren't on when I get dressed. <laughs> Whatever shirt comes out of the drawer is going on, and I'm surprised as anyone to find out what color it is. Okay? That's not what I'm talking about, though. What I'm talking about is, when was the last time you consciously thought about tying your shoes? Or had to learn again the buttoning? of a button-up shirt, okay? Let alone you women who have to figure out how to detach and attach a bra, okay? But you don't think about that anymore. That's how clothing works. It, it has to do with habits. It's natural and normal. But the idea that Paul is pointing us to is a intentional, willful choosing of something different, okay? And we have to understand this. When we say that we cannot earn God's righteousness because it is of grace, that does not mean that there's no room for effort. The New Testament implies effort, but it has to be grace-infused and empowered effort. A dead man cannot put off his death. Okay? The, the Gentiles that he's talking about cannot change who they are. In fact, let me evoke one of the greatest theologians of our modern time, Jay-Z. Consistently, I find that his commentary on human existence is dead on. And so this is what he says in public service announcement. I, I, you think I'm making a joke here? Listen. He says, no matter where you go, you are what you are, player. And you can try to change, but that's just the top layer. The man you was, who you was before you got there. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced trying to change and discover that you just changed on the outside, but the inside is the same? That was Paul's great epiphany. He was righteous, devoted to the law, zealous. And then he saw the law said, don't covet. And he went, oh. Right? He looked inside the heart and he went, whoa. And he recognized that he couldn't change his heart from the outside. But if your heart has been changed in Jesus Christ, you still have to work out your old salvation. 
with fear and with trembling. You still have to put into practice the new things you believe. And so Jay-Z is right. Apart from Christ, you are incapable of real serious change because you are what you are. And when you step into a new place, you take your whole self with you and you might put on a new shirt, but it's a brand new, freshly pressed shirt on a corpse. But what Jesus offers us is the potential of new life because of a radical new beginning in Christ. And so he calls us, because of that beginning, to daily, to regularly, to habitually put off and put on. But let's notice, he gives us three steps here, and they're all important. Look at verse 22, to put off your old self. Verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And verse 14, to put on the new self. The order matters, all three steps matter, and here's essentially what it means, okay? The first thing is you got to get undressed. The first thing is you have to take off. You have to identify the places in your life where your behaviors are in correspondence with who you were. You have to identify the places in your life where your deepest ingrained habits do not reflect the good character of God. So one of the places where you will most likely habitually put off is in conviction and confession of sin. When you notice, when you look down and suddenly you're wearing it again. And this is the thing about habits. Like I said, just like tying your shoes, they're not very conscious anymore. If you want to test this when you brush your teeth tonight, try and brush with the wrong hand. I promise you, without you noticing that it's happened, before you finish brushing your teeth, you will find your toothbrush in the other hand. Because that's where toothbrushes go. Okay? That's habit. That's the power of habit. And so if you want to learn how to be ambidextrous in your toothbrushing, you have to constantly put off and put it back in the other hand. You have to train a new habit. Is that instantaneous? No. And what Paul is talking about here is not instant. He doesn't say, you're dead, so that's over, and you're fine now. He says, relentlessly, religiously, habitually identify those things and take them off. Okay. And then he tells us to put on things, other things in its place, and I think this is ethical genius. I teach people how to public speak pretty often, and I'll, I, you already know this, but the one thing that everybody struggles with if they're not used to public speaking is the ums right? Do you know how to overcome the ums? It's really simple. You have to think of a pause as a physical reality that you choose. Because um is just a habitual way of filling the silence. That's why when we write music, we actually have an annotation for rest. Because the rest means something. You can't just leave it off and get the same song, okay? In the same way, you will never be successful at putting off things if you don't replace them with other things. You cannot just fulfill your Christian calling by sitting in a room in the dark and thinking, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin. In fact, righteousness is never complete to not. He illustrates this in the next verse. He, and we'll talk, we're going to unpack this in application next week pretty heavily. But just to illustrate, he says, those of you who are thieves, don't steal anymore but rather work hard so that you have something to give. That righteousness is not complete because you don't take. It's not complete until you selflessly share what you have. Put off and put on, okay? In fact, I would suggest to you that some of your deepest struggles with sin, it doesn't matter if it's lust or anger or self-righteousness, is because you're just trying to put off. And tell you what, you cannot be habitually naked. A vacuum abhors, right? A nature abhors a vacuum. You will put something back there, and what are you going to reach for subconsciously? Same thing that's always filled it. And so you have to not just put off, but put on. But I want you to notice that there's a middle step there, and this is central. You cannot put on the new unless, what does it say here? Verse 23 to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Okay, get the order with me again. It's a sandwich. Put off, be renewed in your mind, put on. Okay. Why does the renewed in your mind matter? 
because you do the things you do because you think the things that you think. And why is the brain so important? Because that's the home of belief. Okay. The things you do are because you believe certain things are true and other things are false. And so, no surprise here, what do you need to do, Paul says, first, you need to remember what you learned in Christ. You need to review the curriculum of Christ. You need to re-encounter and re-subscribe to the podcast of Christ, right? That's a focal point here. And the reason is because although sin is insanity, it is reasonable. The reason sucks. It doesn't work, but that doesn't mean we don't have reasons, Let's go back to that thief. Why does he no longer steal? Because in Jesus Christ, he has been given a father who knows his needs before he asks them. Because he's no longer alone in life and needs to eke it out and provide for himself, he can trust in God's provision. But more than that, Jesus, who had all the wealth in the world, freely laid it down and became poor so that he might become rich. The more you understand those ideas, the more you will be capable of putting off and putting on. Okay? And so the way that we change is not to come up with some sort of regiment apart from Christ. This is not a secondary, all right, I have the gospel and now I need to live it out. No, the way you live it out is by reviewing and reconsidering and meditating on and exploring and discovering and being impacted by the same gospel. Okay. The secret to change is a deeper understanding of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. But notice verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Grammar matters. What does be renewed tell us? Why doesn't it say and renew your mind? Because it's passive. Okay? It's passive means that you are not called to change your mind, but you are called to have your mind changed, which is weird. There's a recognition here that even this, being renewed in our mind, is something you can't do. It's something that you can't do on your own. In fact, Paul says here you need the Spirit to do it. Okay? And so, how does this work? Simply, you have to be open to it. You have to be asking for it. You have to recognize that you can't change your mind. Have you ever tried? If I say, I will give you a half million dollars if right now you believe that there's a pink elephant on this stage, none of you gets the money. You can't change that, right? The only way you can change that is to confront what you actually believe with reality until you believe reality instead. Okay? And so if you come up here and you start to touch that pink elephant and you start to realize the color pink is in front of you, then you just believe it naturally. But this isn't natural. It's supernatural. The Spirit is just as interested, I would suggest even more interested in you becoming more like Christ. It is literally his job. That's what he's here to do. Okay. To produce the fruit of the Spirit in you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, which is basically just Jesus' resume. Okay. He's the one who empowers you for newness of life. He's the one who sealed you for salvation, and he's also the one who renews your mind. And so you do this asking for regular and continuous help, and you do this by opening your eyes to see and asking God to show you. There's a both and here that's involved. But listen, guys, if you reflect on your own Christian life and the places where you've experienced significant transformation, I promise you, put off, renew your mind, put on, will show up every time. This is so central, so nice, that Paul says it twice. Romans 12 I beseech you, therefore, brethren, because of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then he says this, and do not be conformed to this world. No longer be what you were, but be transformed, changed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Okay. 
This is why we open our Bibles every Sunday for a fresh look at who Jesus is and what he's done. This is why we constantly remind and exhort and encourage and comfort from the scriptures. This is why we have to recognize in our life that the doubts we struggle with are almost always just the shadows cast by other beliefs. If you're struggling to believe that God is good, it's inherently because you believe something else. Maybe you believe in a different definition of good. Maybe you believe that you would be a better good God than God would. Whatever it is, we have to confront our idols. That's part of putting off. But you also need to wrap your head around the profound and deep and inexhaustible and life-altering reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And as you do that, change will follow. So to review, put off. you got to name it. you got to confront it. And you've got to consciously choose to take it off. But remember, you do that saying, that's not who I am. That part of me died with Christ. That's no longer not only who I want to be, but in my identity of Christ, it's no longer who I am. Paul mystifyingly says, even when I sin, it's not me that does it, it's the sin that's in me. I honestly don't know what that means, but it's compatible with what we've seen this morning. Something about Paul's core identity is new and no longer old. And let's be honest, for a lot of us, that's actually where we struggle. We're convinced this is who we are. We believe Jay-Z. We were who we were before we got here. And so we walk in and we go, there is no escaping behaving the way I've always done. This is just who I am. Take it or leave it. This is not who you are in Christ. You need to renew your mind. You need to consciously take the things you're putting off and go, why do these things not make sense anymore? What has Jesus done that's changed the math on this reality? How does it impact my motives, where I'm trying to get to? Who is God really? And then you need to consciously choose to do the putting on. Again, don't just leave it there, but take action in the direction of your new life in Christ. Now, we're going to unpack this in multiple examples next week because that's what Paul does. But right now, I just want you to get the basic curriculum for sanctification. I want you to understand how this works. I want you to understand that you have everything you need for life and godliness right now. I want you to understand that the center of everything you need is Jesus himself. As teacher, as classroom, as curriculum, as the truth is in Jesus, God has already given you everything you need in Jesus himself to change. And I want you to develop a new habit of making new habits by putting off, by renewing your mind, and by putting on. Let's pray.